Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. This episode contains graphic depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. It's a Thursday night in May 1986, and 20-year-old Sharon Phillips is driving through the outer suburbs of Brisbane with her friend Samantha. They've had a big day of shopping at Sunnybank Plaza, and Sharon's in a great mood. Sometimes the world seems cruel, nothing ever goes your way. She's already thinking about the date she's going on tomorrow night with Martin. At the shops today, she picked up a new set of lingerie especially, and she can't wait to test it out. It's getting close to 11pm when she pulls up outside Sam's house. As her friend waves goodbye, Sharon turns her car around and heads home. But as she reaches Ipswich Road at Wacol, her car splutters to a stop. Ugh, no petrol. Across the road, she notices the main entrance to the army barracks. She can hear men partying. So she wanders over to ask if they have a telephone she can use. Nope. No help. After wandering down the road some more, she finds a phone box and asks the operator if she can make a manually placed call. Annoyingly, she doesn't have any coins on her. It's 11.18pm when she calls Martin. He agrees to swing round and pick her up. She calls again at 12.03pm, wondering where he is. Martin arrives soon after, but when he pulls up, Sharon is nowhere to be found. He finds her car empty and assumes she found another lift. It's the last time anyone ever hears from Sharon Phillips. Her disappearance will remain a mystery for the next 30 years until a deathbed confession changes everything. I'm Gemma Bath, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Kate Kiriaku, the chief crime reporter for Courier Mail Brisbane. Kate spent the last decade reporting on crime in Queensland and has joined us on True Crime Conversations before to discuss some of the state's most high-profile cases, including the murder of Daniel Morecambe and the inquest into Hannah Clark's death. Today, she's going to be walking us through one of Brisbane's most memorable cold cases, the disappearance of Sharon Phillips. Who was Sharon Phillips in 1986? Where was she at in her life at that stage? Oh, so Sharon was a 20-year-old young woman who was working at a fruit and vegetable shop and she came from a really big, really close family. There were like nine kids in the Phillips family and her dad would sort of describe it later that if you took on one, you took on them all. So it was a really sort of tight family and Sharon had a 
sort of a big personality and she was a big girl. She was more than six feet tall. I think she was 183 centimetres and she was sort of like a, a fairly solid build and really sort of independent and feisty and fun and loyal and had a good group of friends. She had just recently been on a double date with a new boy and was looking forward to a second date with him, which was just going to be the two of them. She'd also recently moved out of the family home, which I imagine must have been like a really sort of hectic house to live in with so many kids and all of these kids being like, you know, kind of loud and big personalities and that sort of thing. And she'd moved into her own little unit that she was paying for by herself and she'd set it up beautifully you know she had really nice furniture she had pot plants she had photos of her family members everywhere and on the weekend her younger siblings would come and take turns spending the weekend with her so I hope that gives you a bit of an impression of the kind of person Sharon was she's very much a family girl but very independent and just about to start her life by the sounds of it she had a new home a new job a new love interest. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And she'd been really excited about this date that was coming up, you know, on the night she disappeared. She'd actually gone shopping with a workmate and she'd bought some nice new lingerie for her date. So she was really excited about it. So after this big day of, you know, shopping and fun, she drops her friend off. Then as she's headed home, she pulls over on the side of the road in Waycole. Why did she do that? Because it's quite late at night, isn't it? It was really late. It was about 11pm. And the reason she's pulled over is because she's run out of petrol. And the family sort of would later say that, you know, she was really good with her money, but she'd only ever put a, a couple of dollars in her petrol tank at a time because she'd just sort of rather spend her money on something a bit more interesting than petrol. And I'm sure every single person can identify with that. So they were sort of always on at her to be a bit more responsible with filling up her car. And yeah, unfortunately on that night, she ran out of petrol on Ipswich Road at Wakehold. So she's got out of the car and I mean, I think it's really important to remember all through this scenario that we're talking about 1986 here. So not only does that mean that obviously she couldn't get out her mobile phone and call RACQ or call her dad or whoever, she had to go find a phone booth. But also we're looking at 1986 investigative techniques and technology when it comes to finding out what happened to Sharon. So What happened was Sharon got out of the car and she started walking to try and find help. And she walked up to a nearby army barracks and went through the gate. And I think there was a bit of a party on that night. And so she's walked up to people and said, oh, can I use your phone? And it sounds like they were quite rude to her and said, no, there's no phone here. You know, so she then had to walk back out onto the road and find some other means of calling for help. And that would prove problematic later on because when police worked out that she'd gone to the army barracks there, I think some of them suggested that she hadn't been there, they hadn't seen her. And, you know, possibly that's because they'd sent her away without giving her help. So, I mean, all of those things back in a time where you don't have forensics and technology like we do today, detectives really work on their gut, you know. So conversations like that, I guess, send them down the wrong path for periods of time and you know obviously all of those people at the army barracks were ruled out so from there she has found a little petrol station 
and a little group of shops in there and there was like a twin payphone out the front. I think she made a reverse charge phone call and called the young man she was supposed to be going on a date with the following night and asked him to come and pick her up. And he, you know, it was obviously late at night and he said, no problem, and got in his car and went to find her. But she'd sort of said the Shell petrol station. He didn't quite know where she meant. So unfortunately, he has gone to the wrong petrol station and didn't find her there and then has unfortunately got a flat tyre. And so that obviously took him a while to sort that out and then went looking for her a bit around the area and came across her car on the side of the road and she wasn't there. So he thought, oh, well, she must have found some other way to get home. What is the time frame here we're talking about? Because, you know, she pulls over around 11pm. What time is the boyfriend or the date that we're talking about? His name is Martin. So what time is Martin turning up? So I think this went on for about an hour and she had actually made a second phone call because she waited for so long that she thought, is he coming or not? And obviously he'd gone to the wrong place and broken down himself. So she called the house again, got his housemate who said, oh, he left ages ago. He should have been there by now. So she sort of thought, oh, okay, I'll I guess I'll have to keep waiting. So she makes her first phone call to the boyfriend at 11, 18 p.m., And then when she phones again, it's 12.03 a.m. So she was kind of, you know, a bit of a loss what to do at that point. And people had stopped and asked her if she was okay. And she said, I'm fine. I'm waiting for my boyfriend. So those people, you know, came forward. And that was really the last anyone had heard from Sharon. So they knew she was alive at midnight and then nothing. So what happened after that is the next day she was supposed to go to work at the fruit and veg place. And I mean, this is really lovely, the concern from her work colleagues, because they were the ones who raised the alarm when she didn't turn up the next morning at 7am. And they thought she's so reliable, immediately something was wrong. So someone from her work called Sharon's parents and said, where's Sharon? You know, and then some of them have gone looking for her and found her car. And of course, her dad, Bob, had also found her car. So he was there. So, you know, this is very unusual for Sharon. And immediately that day, everyone was quite worried. And like I said, her family, very close knit. And this was a matter of a lot of discussion over the years. I think, you know, on the surface at the time, people thought her family had maybe gotten in the way of a crime scene or of the police or had sort of messed things up a little bit. But really, If someone you really love has gone missing, you don't think about that. All you think about is where did she go? What can we do to work that out? Because Sharon wasn't actually reported missing until 8pm that night, so on the Friday. So in the meantime, her family was trying to look for her? Yeah, that's right. So they were calling the boyfriend. They went to her car. They looked through her car. They went to her house. They got into her house. I think at some point, I'm not sure exactly when, But her family took her car home and then the police got upset about that because, you know, when it became a murder investigation fairly quickly, they didn't know exactly where the car had been parked. So they had to try and get the car back there. But, I mean, you can sort of feel this sort of situation where, you know, her dad was a truck driver. He was a bit of a rough guy, you know, a bit of a tough love dad who loved his children dearly. He didn't want to wait for the police 
he just kind of took matters into his own hands, you know, and a lot of their siblings did too. They were looking through our address book trying to call people and, you know, all of these things are things that you would probably do before you really, you know, are certain that you need to get the police involved and obviously every situation is different but I suppose they wanted to make sure she was really missing and hadn't gone to a friend's house or whatever. She was living, you know, independently of her family of course so, it's not like she hadn't come home to the family home. They needed to work out, is she missing? And then when they knew that she was, they contacted police. Because the other crime scene the police got a bit frustrated about being disturbed, so to speak, was her home because, you know, her family were coming and going. They were trying to look for her. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, in hindsight, you can see that that's not a great situation. But, you know, I'm sure they were just desperately trying to work out where she was. You know, one of the things was the lingerie that she'd bought shopping with her friend had been taken out and spread over the bed, just things like that, you know, so that they didn't really know how she'd left her place. They didn't know whether she'd made it home after breaking down or not. And, in fact, that was a theory of one of the lead investigators for a long time that perhaps she had made it home and then something had happened to her there. But they didn't actually know the state of her unit because people had come and gone from there and looking for her address book, looking for any clues that, you know, when she'd last been there, was there someone else there, all that sort of stuff that you can really understand both perspectives there. In those initial few days when the police did start getting involved, obviously Sharon spoke to quite a few people in the hour or so before she went missing. There was the army barracks guys, there was the people that asked her if she needed help, there was someone at the Shell station. Did any of those people see anything? Did they tell the cops anything? No, no, they, they'd they seen her obviously using the payphone and some of them had been told by Sharon that she was waiting for her boyfriend. But no one saw anything like her being abducted or attacked or anything really like that. Over the years, there was a lot of sort of crazy stories that came about of people who thought they'd seen things. But I think in this case, particularly back in the late 80s, was incredibly high profile. You know, the family at one point even tried to get Bob Hawke involved. In any high profile case like that, a lot of people come out of the woodwork and, you know, make claims about things and probably most are well-meaning and believe that they've seen those things, but, you know, they're kind of like red herrings. But, yeah, a lot of people saw her. Certainly nobody saw her being abducted or anything like that. Five days after she went missing police found some of her belongings. Can you talk us through those findings? Yeah, and that was always something that was really, really unusual and, you know, it would be a very long time before police would really have an explanation for that. But some of her personal possessions, I think it was her shoes in a bag, were found in sort of like a a ditch alongside the road basically where she'd broken down. And the strange thing about that was police had been over that ground over and over, like in a very thorough line search. And that's what they do in any case like this. They line up and they walk a step at a time and they look for anything out of place. And they had not found her shoes or her purse on the side of the road. They just hadn't. So there was a lot of argument at the time, well, did they stuff up the search? Was somebody not looking? Or had someone come back after and put those things on the side of the road near where she broke down? And Really, like, if you were sort of looking at it, you would think the police must have stuffed this up because why would someone come back to that point a couple of days later 
and throw possessions there. Like it's just a bit of a bizarre thing and a risky thing too. Yeah, but in the end, that's exactly what had happened. Someone who knew what had happened to Sharon had come back and left those items there. I know that we've said that the police were quite frustrated with Sharon's family for tampering with the crime scene, but in return they were also really vocally furious with the cops too, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. And I assume you would need an outlet for your grief and your frustration and your anger when days turn into months and months turn into years and you still don't know what happened to your daughter or your sister. And Sharon's mother, Dawn, you know, this broke her and I think it's fair to say it broke her father as well. And for a long time, her father was a suspect, you know, and still to this day, a lot of people, including relatives, still think it was Bob who murdered his own daughter. And, you know, that's a really sad situation. But, you know, over the years too, I think it's fair to say that Bob Phillips and the head of homicide at the time, a, a detective named Bob Dallow, they became pretty good friends. And they're kind of both rough kind of guys and you can sort of see that they would get along. And for a lot of police, this job was one that they were so determined to solve and just never got there. And, you know, like I said earlier, it was a different era and it's very difficult to solve cases like these back in that era where you don't have mobile phones that show everywhere you've been and you don't have you know, traffic cameras everywhere or CCTV or dash cameras. You know, if this had happened today, it wouldn't have happened. She would have made a phone call on her mobile phone. But if someone disappears today, you know, there would have been cameras like that shopping strip. There would have been all kinds of things that would have helped police work out what had happened to Sharon. But back then, there wasn't. They had to go with their gut. They had to walk the footpath and talk to people and they just didn't get anywhere for a very long time and, you know, that would have broken her parents. What was it about her father? Why were their family members accusing him? He was just a bit of a tough love sort of dad and, you know, I think it happens a lot of times when tragedy like this hits a family. You know, for want of a better phrase, things can go to shit, you know. It just really it's really hard for them. And this once tight-knit family really, I think Bob Phillips told media at some point that they were all estranged and that's really sad. And so I suppose some of the family thought that Bob did it and that he was a real hard man and he wasn't a perfect father. But then some of the other siblings are devastated by that, particularly the younger ones. You know, the younger ones were still living at home when this happened and they saw his grief and his frustration and his despair and what he did to look for her. You know, like in sort of going back over all my material for this case, I found an article about at one point Bob met with a psychic and, in fact, both Bobs met with this psychic, the police officer Bob and the father Bob. I find it extraordinary now that homicide investigators would consult with a psychic and, in fact, this one was flown overseas to come and consult on the case and try and establish what happened to Sharon. You know, Bob Phillips would be out there looking for his daughter everywhere with some of the other siblings. He dedicated half of his life to it, you know, just scouring the bush, any single tip or hint from anybody and he'd be out there looking for her. And, you know, again, that's a pretty sad thing. I was looking what this psychic said had happened to Sharon and some people 
you know, have a lot of faith in this sort of stuff. I'm not one of those people. And I can tell you that nothing that this person said matches what police now believe. What kind of things are we talking about? What are they saying? Sharon was murdered by a scar-faced drug addict for no motive. Oh, wow. He is about 39 years old, light chestnut hair with a scar on the left side of his face. His face is wrinkled and rough-looking. His eyebrows are light-coloured and short. He was dressed in dark or black clothes and on the left side of his top there was something like an emblem or a badge. The initials of his real name are AF. He has a false name now and uses the initials LG and then gave a location where she was buried. That's so specific. Yeah, yeah, really specific. Here we go. The body of the girl is buried in this place near a tree stump and a water hole and that was somewhere in the direction of Toowoomba, yeah, along the 100-kilometre stretch of the Toowoomba Road. And, you know, this is really awful. Her dad was out there looking in those areas for her and he said at the time, you know, he'd try anything, even if they never found out who did this to Sharon, if they got her back, if they were able to give her a proper funeral, then, you know, that would have helped him. And when we get on to what police believe actually happened to Sharon, you'll see that that information that the psychic gave is actually possibly the opposite of what came to pass. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Gemma Bath. I'm speaking with journalist Kate Kiriakou about the disappearance of Sharon Phillips. Well, let's fast forward to January 1988 because there is an inquest held into Sharon's disappearance. And at that inquest, there's some pretty insane evidence that's put forward by a man named Robert John Brown. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think he gave some evidence that she was abducted by a group of men I think he was a neighbour or he knew the family or something like that. I obviously did not report on that inquest at the time because it was a very long time ago. But they did say at the time it didn't progress the case. And I think a lot of well-meaning people come out in high-profile cases and they tell stories. And they're just not always right. It doesn't mean there was anything vindictive about that person. At the time, it says he was a known alcoholic. Yeah, so it just wasn't right. And it happens all the time in cases like this. And in fact, over the years, I've been a journalist in Queensland for 10 years now. And I myself have got a whole bunch of tips of various different theories or information about what could have happened to Sharon. And you always try and check them out. And a lot of the time someone just saw something unusual and they sort of think, could this be connected to Sharon and it's not, you know, and good on them for coming forward because you really never know and it's always best to come forward. But it's a situation that happens a lot. And nothing really came of that first inquiry, did it? No, no, that's right. It didn't. And, you know, over the years... Like I said, a lot of people came forward and they followed a lot of leads and her family continually appealed through the media for information. In fact, there was a sign on Ipswich Road that just had Sharon's name, which is basically famous in Brisbane. You know, everyone knows about the Sharon Phillips case because they drove past that sign for so long. And then if we fast forward to about five years ago, suddenly we have police doing an excavation of a stormwater drain 
in Carroll Park, which is sort of in that sort of side of town, looking for, you know, potentially the remains of Sharon Phillips. I remember going out to that scene and that's an extraordinary situation because, sure, police, you know, chase leads and do searches all the time, but getting an excavator in and spending days out there moving huge amounts of soil, that's pretty extraordinary. They clearly had some interesting information to warrant doing that. They don't do it if there's nothing to back that up or they don't have a very good feel about the information. Yeah, so what they had was a a deathbed confession, essentially. That's right. So the son of the man who made the deathbed confession had tracked down Bob Dallow, who over the years, you know, people like myself who might want to write a feature about Sharon Phillips to sort of keep her case in the public eye would go to Bob Dallow. So he was always in the media talking about the Sharon Phillips case. And I guess if you're trying to be heard by the police, you might also go to Bob Dallow. So this man, a man by the name of Ian, had tried to contact police with information. And again, on the surface, it sounds like one of these, you know, I saw a bunch of young men bundle her into the back of the car and she was screaming and I saw this. One of those things that just goes nowhere. On the surface, it sounds like that. And so he didn't have much luck getting someone to listen to him. So he went to Bob Dallow. Few people know this case like Bob. And he told Bob a story. He said, my dad was a taxi driver And in 2002, he died of cancer. Before he died, he confessed to me that he murdered Sharon Phillips. So he said that my dad was the night driver for a taxi belonging to a man who lived at the back of that group of shops where she made the phone call. And so at about 11 o'clock at night or so, he would finish his shift and he would go and leave his taxi at the back of that group of shops. And then I would come pick him up and drive him home, you know, on occasion. He said he was the night driver on the night Sharon disappeared, which would have put him driving into that group of shops when she was, you know, basically desperate waiting for her boyfriend. So I don't know, I guess Bob Dallow, it rang true to him. And so he's made some phone calls and said to the police, you know, you should have a look at this. And so they did. And he said, I had run into dad that night while driving somewhere and he saw that his dad was driving the taxi and was drunk. So his dad said, follow me to where I leave the taxi and then you can drive me home. So he did. And in the meantime, the police tried to pull over his dad and he's cut in front of them and sort of cut them off so his dad could get away. So they pulled him over instead. And so he's had a chat to them and got back in the car and he basically said, I'm just picking my old man up. And they followed him there, I think spoke to him again outside that group of shops and then left. And so what police think has happened is that Sharon has seen the taxi drive down the back of the group of shops and she's gone to ask that taxi driver to take her home because, you know, obviously she was stranded. She'd been there for an hour. And that guy's name was Raymond Mulverhill and he would come to be described as an overweight, balding, Danny DeVito sort of looking person. And in fact, when you see his picture, I think that's a very good description. Yeah, it is. It gives you quite the visual, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she's gone up to him and he's apparently, 
you know, attacked her effectively and bundled her into the boot of the car and basically told his son to shut his mouth, do what he's told, and they were to drive home back to their house. And so when they got back there, Mulver Hill has then kept driving off with the car with Sharon in the back. So obviously this deathbed confession when he died of cancer, he said it's time to give Sharon back to her family and gave the location where he'd taken her body, which was the Carroll Park drain. And, I mean, on the surface you'd think, is this another story? But police checked it all out and were able to verify quite a lot of it, which is extraordinary, to the point where the head of homicide at the time, back five years ago, said if Raymond Mulverhill was alive today, we would be charging him with murder. And that's a big call, you know, like, you need a substantial amount of evidence to charge someone with murder. So what they were able to verify was that, yes, in fact, those police had pulled his son's car over and they remember doing that. I think there was a record of it and they were able to verify that, yes, in fact, Raymond Mulverhill was a night driver for the taxi and the taxi was parked at the back of that shop and that would have been the case that night. So they're able to find those records. Even more compelling was, and this is, I guess, you know, sometimes you you feel kind of good about media coverage if it brings people out of the woodwork even decades later, and that's what happened. When the media covered the dig at the Carroll Park stormwater drain, a couple came forward and said, you know, that reminds us on the night Sharon Phillips disappeared, we were driving along that road where the stormwater drain is there, and we saw a man coming out of the bushes carrying a shovel to his taxi with all the doors open and interior light on, all that sort of stuff, you know, basically covered in dirt. And they'd pulled over and said, are you all right? What are you doing? And he said, can't a guy take a shit in peace, basically? And they said, okay, fair enough, and left him to it. But when they described him, which they did to a T, even though decades had passed, they described the taxi, they described Raymond Mulverhill, exactly even though police at that time had not made anything public about the taxi driver and what he looked like. So that was a really, really important independent recollection which verified what the son said about his dad telling him where Sharon was buried. And very unfortunately, they didn't find her remains there and they believe that's because a few years earlier the council had actually gone and cleaned out that stormwater drain and they'd taken the dirt and everything from there and moved it somewhere where they weren't then able to go and and search. So they did that search anyway just in case and they didn't find her, which is obviously very sad because I imagine that would have been very important for the family after so many years. And you mentioned earlier about Sharon's things being found a few days after she was initially reported missing. What did police find out about how they end up back at the site where her car was left? So one of the things Ian, the son, told police was that he had found Sharon's shoes and her purse in the car and took them inside thinking it belonged to his sister or something like that. And Raymond Mulverhill saw it and basically lost his mind and said, what are you doing with that? And that's when the son has worked out that those items belong to Sharon. So he got back in his car, drove out to Waco where Sharon had broken down. There were police everywhere. So he drove a little further along the road and just, you know, basically 
dumped the items on the side of the road and took off. And they were discovered soon after when police were obviously walking along there again. And that explains why police back in 1986 had searched the side of the road and they hadn't found her purse and shoes. And then a few days later, there they are because Raymond Mulhill drove them back there and dumped them on the side of the road. And because that's something that was always, you know, such a point of contention. Did you miss it? Did someone come back? And, in fact, you know, Ian Seely, Raymond Mulverhill's son, said that's exactly what happened. He found the items a couple of days later and then took them back to the scene and threw them out. Have we ever had any kind of, you know, idea of what a motive could have been or how he would have killed Sharon? So, I mean, you know, a motive is a... A complicated issue, right? Because what possible reason could you have for ending someone's life? You know, like I just don't think there's ever, ever any reason for anyone to do that. However, it does seem like a really awful random killing. And it does make you think if Raymond Mulverhill is the kind of person who saw a young woman stranded at a petrol station in the middle of the night and he grabs her and murders her for his own what gratification, who knows. What else did he do, you know? I know that there's even journalists in this building who remember him being a taxi driver back in that era and driving them out, you know, to interviews or whatever, and they remember him talking about how much he hates women. So he's a pretty recognisable guy. I imagine a lot of people have similar memories of him, and I think it's just, it seems like he was just evil, you know. Do we know why Ian waited so long? Like, obviously, he waited decades since the disappearance, but he also waited quite a long time since the death of his father, if, if he was worried about that, like 2002 to 2016 when he finds Bob Dallow. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I know police have spoken to him, you know, on various occasions. He is quite vocal about his dad. He believes his dad was an evil man. He believes his dad is responsible for more murders than just Sharon's. You know, he said for a long time he was frightened of his dad. But, yeah, I, I'm really not sure why it took him so many years to come forward. Well, there was another inquest held with all of this fresh information. And I want to pause here because hearing you talk about it like this, it's made me reflect on just why it's so important with these cold cases to keep talking about them because you just never know when there's going to be fresh evidence. I think it's always really important to keep cold cases in the public eye, particularly if that's what the family wants, you know, because it's always difficult for family to have it out there in the public eye over and over decades later. It's really difficult, but you just never know when some new piece of information will come forward that will solve it. And, you know, Queensland police have a cold case homicide unit that consistently goes over old cold cases and does things like uses new technology to get new leads, you know, and they will go back and forensically test old evidence. They recently in one cold case, they put up a billboard on the road where they believe that person or, you know, like a relevant area where they'll last seen or something like that. They'll also do targeted Facebook posts and all that sort of stuff because you just never know. And a lot of these cases are solvable because they just lack the technology back in the day. And and we have that technology now. So there's a lot of scope to be able to go back and solve some of these cases. 
One of the testimonies that I was most interested in from that second inquest was Alison Clancy. She was the sister-in-law of Raymond. And she told the court that he had actually confided in her about his role in that crime. Like he had spoken about it at a family gathering quite openly in 1992. He did apparently confess to a number of people and I think either those people were scared of him or didn't really believe him, you know, just sort of he was big noting himself. But it is quite extraordinary that a case with such a high profile for so many years took so long for this information to come out. You know, some of these things you wonder why it didn't become evident at the time, particularly a taxi driver working the night shift and pulling into the back of that row of shops, you know. Was he spoken to at the time? It seems like he would be someone who was in the right place at the right time, if that makes sense. Obviously, with Raymond now dead, we were never going to get a conviction. But is he confirmed to be the killer? What came from that inquest? What is the result here? So a coroner can make a finding like that. They can find that Sharon was murdered and they can find that there's enough evidence to say that Raymond Mulverhill was responsible. And I think in lieu of being able to actually prosecute someone, giving an answer to family who have not known what happened to her for so long is valuable, you know, like and obviously I don't want to speak for them, but if you can't see someone face justice, at least knowing what happened to her is very important. So in this case, a coroner could find that he's responsible for her murder and that's important, particularly for the memory of Bob Phillips who died not knowing what happened to his daughter. Is there anything we can take away from this case? For me, it's that, you know, those cold cases that we always see the cops talking about, in every state they'll come forward and, you know, they'll mark an anniversary. Here in New South Wales, they marked the 11th birthday for William Tyrrell, which is a cold case here. Like, it just feels like we can never give up because you never know. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And recently in Queensland, they have made arrests in cold cases that are like 50 years old, you know, so... I totally agree that's the takeaway here. Check every lead as police do and never stop looking for answers because you just never know when someone might come forward. And every single time I've ever interviewed police on a cold case murder investigation, they plead with the public. You know, it's really the public that often solves these cases and they always say it doesn't matter how tiny, insignificant the information is, if you think it could help, tell us about it. And then, you know, obviously, if they have five people come up with the same tiny piece of information, then, you know, that's really important to them. Or maybe that tiny little piece of information you have is the link that they need to link other pieces of information. You just don't know how relevant it is until you tell them. And and they're the ones with the more complete picture of what they're looking at. So I find it extraordinary that that couple remember seeing a man walking out of the bush carrying a shovel, covered in dirt, getting into his taxi in the middle of the night at the exact place where, you know, they look for Sharon's body. And they remembered him to a T. They remember the taxi and that's without that information being made public at all. That was such important information in this case. Thanks to Kate Kiriakou for helping us to tell Sharon's story. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know here in your favourite podcast app. 
Even just by giving us a star rating, you're helping us appear in the podcast apps of more true crime lovers, which helps us keep creating the content you love. And if you want to take the next step in supporting our team of content creators, you can become a Mamma Mia subscriber. It costs as little as $5.75 a month and gives you access to every podcast, exclusive videos, and all our great articles. For more information, see the link in our show notes. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Gemma Bath, and my executive producer is Gia Moylan. We'll see you next week.